Dennis Kinlaw served as an evangelist, pastor, educator, and administrator from 1944 to 2017. Passionate about sharing biblical truth, Dr. Kinlaw became a significant voice for holiness in the 20th century. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. Let me turn back this morning to a very old and very familiar passage. Genesis 12, beginning with verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife, Sarah, his nephew, Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. Christians, more than any other people in the world, are interested in history. I think you probably are aware, this congregation probably is, that it was the Hebrews who gave, really, the first history writing to the world. The reason is that uh, we have a profound interest in what God is doing in his world. But there are two human stories told in human history that Christians keep keep an eye on. One of them is human history generally, and the other is that peculiar history of the people of God. And the interaction between those two is something that is very significant and very important to us. Christians are concerned about general history, the kind that Dan Rather reports and that the historians write for the history courses. We're concerned about that because we believe that God created the world, one God, a loving God. He made it with a good purpose, and uh, he is the Lord of it all. Ultimately, it will be clear that he has been sovereign through the whole thing. Now, the New York Times doesn't know that, but uh, we know that. As believers, we know that. We uh, know that this world, no matter who's reporting it, It is our Father's world. Now you see this in an interesting way in the Gospel of Luke. When it gives the genealogy of Jesus, it begins, you will remember, with Adam. Starting with the first man works all the way down to Jesus, the Redeemer of the world. So that the perspective in Luke in that genealogy is universal history. It is the whole story. Now the second story that we have a particular interest in which is crucial for us, we have an interest in because it tells us of the Redeemer, the one who come, God who came, 
in order that he might redeem the world from the chaos into which we have brought it and the tragic tragedy into which we have brought it. Uh, this Redeemer, Christ, is the only one who can redeem us, and uh, our world, because it is out of touch with him, has that general history which takes no note of him. So what we as Christians are are people who are interested really in a story within a story. Some people think it is a smaller story, and some people would say it's a very insignificant story. But it is a story within that broader, larger story. But you and I know that it is that what the world calls that more insignificant and that smaller story. It is that smaller story that gives meaning to the larger whole. In fact, if you didn't have that smaller story, you would have no way of ever making meaning out of the whole. Now, uh, we as biblical Christians believe that history does have significance, that time is important, and that uh, in that story within the story, we get the significance of the whole. Now, you get that, interestingly enough, suggested in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew, because you will remember that in Matthew, Matthew begins where I began reading today with Abraham and moves from Abraham to Jesus so that we have in Jesus the culmination of a story that began with Abraham, that story within the larger story, the story of the people of God. I, uh, As I thought about that, I remembered from my high school days, and I'm not sure I had read it since, though I certainly should have. I remember a teacher who tried to get me instructed in Shakespeare, and she was not very successful. But I do remember this passage, and I'm sure that you do too. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. You would think he listened to Dan Rather every night, wouldn't you? Now, we know there another story, and that story is the one that is our concern, and it is there that we find meaning for ourselves, meaning for our existence, and meaning for our work and our vocation. Now, you will find as you live with that concept that uh, this story, that smaller story, is a part of a larger whole, but it has a universal character to it. It is not just a story for the people who are found within that story, but there is something within that story that has relevance for the whole. So that whatever is taking place in a body of believers ultimately will have significance for the last person that ever exists. It has that universal character to it. Now, we uh, don't always uh, see that, and so we do some things that sometimes obscure that. One of them is that oftentimes Christians believe that the, they are in tension with the world, and the world is the devil's domain, and they should withdraw from it. And so we have had Christian groups who withdrew from society and tried to build their own 
little Christian communities where they could live their days out and go to a better, go to a better world. And so you have things like the monastic mentality at uh, when at least it could on occasion developed in that way and in uh, the Amish mentality. I remember a man who was doing a doctoral dissertation on higher education and he was asked by his professor to do a study, a PhD. He was in a Western university, one of the major universities in this country as far as higher education is concerned. That professor's department had a $44 million budget He said, uh, I would be very interested in your doing a study of the ethics of the administrators, the presidents, the chief executive officers of evangelical Christian colleges. This was some six or seven years ago. And he was fascinated by that because he had no indication that his professor was an evangelical. He said, uh, now you know that world. And he said, I'd like to see you do your dissertation on that, and I would like to guide you in that. He said, well, to the professor, well, why are you interested in the ethics of the presidents of Christian evangelical colleges? Well, he said, uh, some things are taking place in our society that are going to make it very difficult for you. It will only be a matter of little time until the accreditation of a college in this country will depend on whether it will accept homosexuals and homosexual practice as a valid way of life. All government finance will be related to that, and accreditation will be related to that. So if you try to adhere to your standards that uh, man is made for woman and woman is made for man, and that a heterosexual marriage is the normal arena for the expression of human sexual activity. He said, you will no longer be able to train a person, any of your students, or any major profession in our society. Then he made this statement I thought was interesting. Then he said, we'll find out whether you want to go Amish or not. Now, there are times when you can understand why sometimes we want to go on it. But the reality is that uh, we have no right to do that because God has called us to be a part of a universal history and we are to be the soul of it. No credit to us. It is because of the one who called us and uh, who has redeemed us. Now, there's some of at times when we do not withdraw, but we reinterpret Christianity, or we interpret it in a very limited way. Sometimes we tend in American evangelicalism to interpret Christianity, to interpret salvation as something extremely personal and narrowly personal. So that uh, if you will go back and the United States over the last 20 years since 1976, the year of the evangelical. And if you will find the context in which the expression born again is normally been used in the general public, it means how for an individual to get his soul saved so he can go to heaven and not have to go to hell, so he can escape the judgment, so that the new birth is a way to get one's own individual soul saved. Now, we do not want to scorn that. Above all, a person who stands in my tradition does not want 
to do it. I pulled out recently just to see it again, Wesley's statement when he told about uh, his experience on Aldersgate Street, May 24th, 1738. And he tells about how, as he heard the preface to Martin Luther's commentary read, he said, suddenly he felt his heart strangely warmed and felt that God, for Christ's sake, had forgiven me my sins, even mine. And what's of interest is that in his own text, he puts the, the pro personal pronouns in italics. God hath forgiven me, and the me is in italics. God had forgiven me my sins, the my is in italics. God had forgiven me my sins, even mine, and mine is in italics. Because suddenly the atonement of Christ had become personal to him, and he knew that his sins were gone, he was redeemed, and he had met a living Lord, and he was saved. But there is a direct line that can be drawn between that highly individual experience of grace and the liberation of the slaves in the British Empire. Because Wesley knew that for him to do what God had saved him for was for him to challenge structures of society that were not biblical and that were not just. So we do not want to go one way or the other. But the beauty is that the gospel is very clear that it is highly personal when you meet the risen Lord. It will be a very individual experience. It will transform your life. But when you meet the individual Lord, you will hear something that will relate you to something infinitely bigger than yourself. Now, we're saying that it is a story within a story, and that it is the, the, the smaller story has a universal character about it. The second story has a very particular character about it. It is a character in contrast to that, where it differentiates the body of Christ from the larger whole. God himself is the author of both of these histories, and so he is concerned about both. You will find that Genesis begins with the creation of the world, not the call of uh, the holy people. You will re remember that when he brought judgment on it in the flood, what he started in Noah was a new race, the whole human race, God interested in the whole. And when God called Abraham in the passage that we read, it's a particular person, but you will notice that in the passage, the perspective is that all the nations of the earth might find blessing through this one whom he has called. You will remember, if you know the book of Isaiah, you will know that again and again, Isaiah points out the fact that God has called Israel a particular nation, but he has called it to be a light to the whole world, a light to lighten the Gentiles. That line is... is uh, poignantly expressed in uh, Isaiah. You will remember that Simeon in Luke 2, in the birth stories of Jesus, picked that up. And when he saw the baby Jesus in the arms of Mary, he said, Lord, now you can let your servant depart in peace. For mine eyes have seen your salvation, a salvation that came through that particular Abrahamic line. For mine eyes have seen your salvation a light to lighten the Gentiles and the hope of my people Israel. Now, you will notice that uh, that was a very particularistic day when Jews drew heavy lines between themselves and all the rest of the world and the Gentiles. 
But Simeon, a man close to God, sensed that the call that came to the people of God was a call that was supposed to encompass every person that lived in all of the world. But as we said, that particularistic side that is there, it, it, uh, it puts us in tension with the world around us. You uh, see this in many ways in the Old Testament. It's in the monotheism that is there. Because Israel came to believe there was only one God. But more than that, they said that they knew his name. Now, I've never felt that I had any adequacy in dealing with the significance of that and the power of that. But they said, we know his name, and when they said, we know his name, his name is Yahweh, that means he's not Jupiter or Zeus or, or Marduk or one of the others. And when they came to know his name, that differentiated him from all the rest of the gods of, the, of human imagination. And so that very particularistic thrust and emphasis was there. We know there is one God and we believe in him and that differentiates us from all the rest of the people of the world. Now, uh, you find that expressed in the Ten Commandments, don't you? We're not to have, the Decalogue tells us, any other God before him. The Hebrew is, he says, you're not supposed to have any other God to my face. You're not to have any other God to my face. That separated them. Separated them exclusively to him. You will remember he said, you're not to make any graven image. Now, what did he mean by that? That was the way religion was expressed everywhere else. All you have to do is look at the artwork of the ancient world, where they would find something in nature and say, that can symbolize our deity, our God, the one whom we worship. God said, there's nothing in the creation that can symbolize me because I created it all and transcend it all. Now, that was not just simply to be have a dominance over the creation, but it was to show the way to salvation, because as you get into the scripture farther, you will find that there is no salvation anywhere except in that God whose name Israel knew. So when he says, I don't want you turning to anything else because there is nothing else that can save you, there's nothing else that can redeem you except me so that it was not to exclude others, it was to open the door so everyone could find the truth. So he said, don't make any images. Now, we need to know that. Uh, there's a man who's on the board of the Billy Graham Foundation, Alan Emery, who wrote a little book called, some of you I'm sure have read it, Turtle on a Fence Post. I was fascinated by the title and thought, what under the sun? And then when I turned and read it, why... He told about seeing a turtle on a fence post, and the question that came to his mind immediately was different from the question that would come to mind. Uh, his question was, how did he get there? He didn't get there on his own. If he got up on the fence post, somebody else put him there. Now, the thrust of the book is that the only salvation that exists is, that can come to you and me is in that one whose name has been given to us, and we know him. And when we find that salvation, it differentiates us from all other people. No credit to us. It is a fact that we simply have been let in on the glory of the one whom, who is the one true and the living God. 
And of course, I think that's one of the reasons for that third commandment. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your, your God in vain. Now, the word which is used there for vain is a word which speaks of emptiness and meaninglessness. You see, that name, if it's the name in which salvation comes, you don't speak it lightly. You can use other names lightly, but this is the only way. And your language should be consonant with reality. So when you speak it, you speak about the only way of redemption, the only way of salvation. So language, religiously here, Christian-wise, is very important. We mentioned that uh, turtle on the fence post, and I thought of something else. I remember in earlier in my years, there was a major theologian in this country who taught at Drew University, uh, they had on the faculty of Drew in my younger years a man by the name of Edwin Lewis. He had been part of the theological, philosophical world of his day and basically was largely a naturalist in his thought. As I remember hearing him tell the story, he was shut up with the Bible for two, or two to three years at the end of the 20s, and the Abingdon Bible commentary came out of it. Out of that experience, he gave a series of lectures at SMU, The Faith We Declare, and then another series of lectures. And somewhere in the early four, in the, in the forties, I was invited to be a part of a group of 300 young Methodist preachers that were pulled together across the United States to, uh, be inspired, challenged to be evangelistic in our ministry. The Board of Evangelism put it on, and Edwin Lewis was the featured speaker. I don't remember anything else he said, but I'll never forget one thing. Uh, he had a way of thundering. He had a craggy face and a voice that fitted it, and he thundered, could thunder when he spoke. He looked at 300 young preachers and said, I have a question to ask you. He said, how you answer that question will tell me whether you have a gospel to preach or not. If you answer it wrongly, you have no gospel. If you answer it rightly, you do have a gospel. That question is simply this. Was Jesus Christ the son of Mary who became the son of God, or was he the son of God who became the son of Mary? He said, if you believe he was the son of Mary who became the son of God, you have no good news for anyone. But if you believe that he was the eternal son of God who became the son of Mary, then salvation has come to earth. God has come to man, and there is hope for us. Now, uh, that's, uh, that's what's implicit within this narrowing. It is not so that we can look down on anybody else. Far from it. God wants to redeem his creation, and he has to start somewhere, and he has let some come to the place where they can know and then they are responsible for sharing it with others. You get that exclusive note in Jesus when he said, very clearly, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, which means that if we do not know him and find him and go through him, we're lost. If we do not know him, find him and go through him, we're in illusion. means if we do not find him, know him and go through him, we are in incipient death, not eternal life. 
Now, there is that exclusive note in the Christian gospel. There are many who get uneasy about that and will take a line like where Jesus said, other sheep I have which are not of this fold, and they must come also, but if you will read the context. The context of that is where Jesus says, I am the door, and no man comes in except through me. Now, there may be people there that I didn't anticipate being there, but the only way they'll get there is through the divine Redeemer who has come to us from heaven. Now, Peter picked that up and, and repeated it. You will remember when he stood on trial before the Sanhedrin, he said, why are we ready to risk our lives like this? There is no other name given under heaven among men whereby a person can be saved. This is the only way it is in Christ. Now, as we said, this makes us different. It puts us in tension with our world. And who among us likes tension? I don't know about you, I don't like tension. I like for people to like me. And I suspect there's something, some of that inside you. But uh, if, we, uh, if we are to follow him, we must go his way. And the only hope for the people who don't like us because we go his way is for them to find out that's the way they need to go and they cannot find it out unless we, unless someone makes that step and pays that price of difference. You remember that Peter, obviously impressed by uh, this concept, said, Dear friends, 1 Peter 2, 11, Dear friends, I urge you, I urge you as aliens and strangers. Now, an older translation said pilgrims and strangers. Now, the word pilgrim means something to Americans. It means people who found they weren't at home in their own country. And their own country didn't want them. And so they came to a new country. They were, they were pilgrims. The word means a stranger. And so you, you get, he says, aliens and strangers in the world. That's who you are. I urge you to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. You live a clean life. You live a life in such a way that the pagans that are around you, though they accuse you of being wrong, they may see your good works and glorify the one true God. And the only way a world has an opportunity to see and know that God is through people who are willing to be different and pay the price of difference. Now, that means that a Christian can't live by Gallup polls. And he can't live by testing the winds. <laughs> He's got to live listening very close to a divine voice. And that's the reason for the cruciality of our relationship to the Holy Spirit. Because he's the only one that can keep us from getting trapped in the allures of our culture and the ways of thought that are around us. What is our role then in this world? Who are we? Uh, let me go back again to the Pentateuch. And here I'll go to Exodus. I think the most significant passage, or the most basic passage in relation to this in the scripture, it is found in Exodus 19. God has now brought his people out of Egypt and has brought them into the wilderness. He has brought them to Mount Sinai, and now the covenant is to be sealed between his people and himself. Let me uh, 
before I do that, mention something that has been of help to me in my thinking. Uh, you know, if you think right, it's easier to live right. <laughs> and if you think wrong, it's a lot more difficult to live right. <clears throat> Somewhere earlier in my life, I read a book on the philosophy of religion by Fulton Sheen. And in that, he used an expression that has been very helpful to me across the years. He talked about the philosophia perennis, the perennial philosophy, sort of the eternal truth. He said, if you will study history, you'll find there is a line of truth that runs down through history. And uh, that is the hope of the world. That line of truth, you see, what he's talking about is that history within, that story within the larger story. He said, you know, uh, as you look at history, it may wander all over the page. The great mass of people may be over here and it may be way over on the right. In another generation, you may find it way over on the left. In another generation, you may have trouble finding it all. And you have to dig. It's underneath. But he said, if you look long enough, you'll find in every generation there is that line of truth that runs down through human history. He said, uh, the importance of it is that there's where the truth is and there is where hope is. Because the only sure future lies incipiently right in the center of that line. Now, I found myself thinking of a red line. I don't know what, whether that was the Old Testament story or whether it was the blood of Christ. But nevertheless, that line that runs down through history. He said, the beautiful thing is, if you get a long enough view, you will find that that line doesn't wander like that, nor does it go like this. It's straight as a die. And it's human history and human culture that wanders back and forth. So don't ever count the crowd. Find out where that line is and stick with it because there's where the future is. And it's oftentimes in the most unexpected places. It's not in Rome or in Athens, but in a place nobody ever heard about like Nazareth. It's not in Egypt or in Babylon. It's in a tent with a guy named Abraham. It's interesting, secular history can't prove that Abraham lived. <laughs> but you and I are here this morning because he did. <laughs> the future is where that line of truth is. And so if that's been a liberating thing for me across the years. Because it's so easy to say, where are the crowds? Instead of where is the truth? Because the crowds may be on a by road. Usually are. So may God give us that sensitivity to truth. But now what is our role? In Exodus 19, he says, I've chosen you. And he says, you are to be, be to me. Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you're to say to the house of Jacob and what you're to tell the people of Israel. Now you'll notice it's the house of Jacob and the people of Israel, two Old Testament names. 
for that story within the story. He says, uh, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. You see where the salvation is? It's not escape from Egypt. It's coming to, to God, coming to Yahweh, coming to the Lord. Salvation is, the, the salvation is in him. You can be out of Egypt and still be in deep bondage. You can die in the wilderness. <laughs> but he says, I brought you out of Egyptian bondage and I brought you to myself. Has he brought you to himself? Do you know him? The salvation's all in him. So he says, uh, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now notice the tension there in the language. The whole earth is his, but he said, you're going to be mine, my special possession. Now, what does he want to do with that special possession? He says, first of all, you will be a special possession to me. The Hebrew word is the word segula. The basic idea is personal property. <laughs> You'll be my personal property. Now, he owns a whole shooting match, but there is a group within the larger group that are his personal property. And that's why we call him Lord, because he uh, owns us. And it is oftentimes translated treasured possession. Because the context seems to connote the idea that it is a thing of extreme preciousness to the heart of the person who owns it. It is like a priceless jewel to a woman who cares for those things. Or like a child, a baby to a mother who has longed for a child. It is like a bride to a man who has fallen passionately in love. I wish I knew enough about Scripture to deal with some of these metaphors. Are you aware that in Jeremiah the sign of apostasy is that there are, nobody can hear the sound of the bride and the groom? The joy of the bride and the groom is the sign of the presence of God in Jeremiah. And when you can't hear that, what does that say about our misunderstandings, our wandering in human sexuality today? But anyway, it's like a, what, a, what a, a bride is to a groom who has fallen passionately in love. That heart that reaches out Joy is in that option. That's the kind of connotation you get when God says, that's what you will be to me. Now, you will find this used in passages like uh, Malachi 3, where he uses the same expression, and the concept is, uh, connotation is treasured possession. Psalm 135, where he speaks and says, Yahweh has chosen Jacob for himself. Israel is his segulah his personal possession. It's like that passage in Ezekiel 16 where Yahweh speaks about Israel as his bride. 
And it is used, the word is actually used in Deuteronomy 26, Israel is delightful, beloved, dear possession. I don't know about anybody else, but I find myself thinking that when I find Jesus talking about his own. When he says, no man will steal them out of my hand, they're mine. Now they may step out themselves, they may turn their back on but he's not going to let them go. You read that last night before the cross, as he says, I don't call you servants anymore, you're my friends. His delight is in them. God puts a high value on his own. Most important thing is his commitment to us. That's the reason there's some foundation for some faith in our commitment to him. Now, the second thing, though, is more significant. God delights in his people. But the second thing is, he says, I want you to be a kingdom of priests. Now here, I wish I had greater adequacy to deal with that. But will you think with me? What is a priest? Let me say very simply, a priest is a person who does not live for himself. I suspect the most significant language used last night was deliverance from the tyranny of self-interest. It is possible for a person to come to the place where there is something dominant in his life other than his own interest. That's what love is, isn't it? So let me say, whether you hear anything else or not, God says, I want you to be a kingdom of priests. I want you to be a kingdom that doesn't live for itself. I want you to be people who don't live for yourself. You live for others. A priest is a person who stands between others, isn't it? Between God and between man. You will remember in the Old Testament the role that the priests played. They were the sons of uh, Aaron. You remember the Levites had no property. The other tribes owned sections in the Holy Land. But the Lord said, the Levites who work around the temple and in religious activities, they are not to own real estate. I am to be their portion. Now, you remember inside, a stream within that stream of Levites was Aaron's sons, the priest. And you know that three times a year, God said, I want every Hebrew to go up to Jerusalem, go up to the temple, and when he gets there, make his offerings. But he could not make the offerings without them. Levites, Levitical help in the priest. And the symbol of it most of all is on that high holy day when the high priest went into the holy of holies. You will remember he wore an ephod that had on each shoulder a, a large onyx and inscribed, carved into each onyx was the name of six of the tribes of Israel. So on one shoulder he bore the names of six of the tribes of Israel and on the other shoulder he bore the names of the other six. And when the priest, the high priest, the chief priest went in, he stood alone between God and the people who wanted to worship him, the people who wanted to know him. Now, that's the role of the body of Christ in the world. We are to be a priestly group. And the world around us, we are to be the means for God to get to that world. Now, uh, the New Testament picks this up. 
You will remember that Jesus took his 12 one day and said, now I want you to go out and I want you to do all sorts of wonderful things. Cast out devils, heal the sick, perform miracles, and I want you to preach the gospel. And then he said to them as they went, he said, whoever welcomes you welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Now, I want you to know I was in my upper 60s before I ever admitted that was in the New Testament. Because I didn't want the load of that. But Jesus said to the 12, if they get you, they get me, and if they reject you, they miss me. And if they get me, they get my father, and if they miss me, they miss my father. Which says that you are to play to the people to whom do you go the role that I play to you. Now, there's no salvation in us. There's no deity in us. But we're the means through which that salvation goes to a world. And we're the only means God has. Now, you will remember that was to the twelve. So there you can build your case for the ordained clergy. But you'll remember in Luke 10, he sent out 70. And when he sent the 70 out, he said, whoever listens to you, listens to me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. And whoever rejects me, rejects the one who sent me. Now, who sent Jesus? The Father. So that as Jesus is the connection between the Father and us, we are the connection to the Father and the world. So he said, I want you to be a kingdom of priests. Now, uh, that was the 70. Then you read in uh, John... Uh, 13, this is again with the 11, Jesus washes the feet of them and he says, Truly I tell you, whoever receives one whom I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. But now notice he's dealing with the 11, but he didn't say to them, whoever receives you gets me. He said, whoever receives the one whom I send. Now that leads me to John 20. You will remember that it was Sunday evening. Cleopas and his friend had met him on the, on the Emmaus Road. And now they have uh, come to Jerusalem to share with the other disciples their experience of the risen Christ. And when they come into that upper room, you will remember they found the men, the women, and the children. They found the body of believers. And Jesus looked at that body of believers and said, As the Father has sent me, so send I you. Whosoever sins you remit, they will be remitted. And whosoever sins you retain, they will be retained. That was not spoken to the apostles alone. That was spoken to the body of believers. Now that has thrown forever Paul's word in Philippians 1 into a different context for me. He says, for me to live is Christ. I don't think there's any question he's saying, that's what I live for, I live for Christ. But if you read the context, I think you'll find he's saying, miracle of miracles. When I live, other people find Christ. Because Christ flows through a person like me. 
Now, you see, when he speaks of us as a priceless treasure, that tells us his relationship to us and the value he places on us. On you, you. You may not want to believe it, but I love that line last night, didn't you? When the older Christian said to Buddy Morrison, God's not mad with you. (laughs) He loves you. God so loved the world. That tells you the value that he places on us. But what's our role? Our role is to stand between a God who wants to redeem a world, who is given that redemption in Christ, and a world that's without redemption and needs it. Now, let's talk about how he does that. That gives us a third thing. You'll remember he says, you're my treasured possession, you're to be a kingdom of priests, and you're to be a holy nation. That word, holy, is the supreme God word in the Old Testament. There are all sorts of things in the Old Testament that are holy. There are holy places, there are holy seasons, there are holy people, there are holy ministries, there are holy instruments, uh, there's a holy temple. But the interesting thing is, not one of them had any holiness in it until it got related to the Holy One, God. He is the Holy One. He said, uh, I want you to be holy because that's the way I am. I want you like me. You see, you were like me once and you sinned and you became like something else. I want you back. I want you like me. I want you holy. It's interesting that uh, you read Mark 1 and when Jesus delivered the demoniac in Capernaum, the devil said, we know who you are. You are the holy one of God. Now God wants a likeness between you and me and himself. We'll come back to that in the morning. But uh, it is... uh, Let me make a comment to tease you and to tantalize you on a little for the next session. Do you know that far more important than anything else is the character of the church, the character of the body of believers? It's far more important than what we preach. If the character of the believer does not correspond to the one whom he represents. They're static in the communication with the world out there. So that the most important need in the church is revival. The most important need in the world is for the church to be revived. Because if we become what God wants us to be, hell itself can't withstand. So you want to pay close attention to Bob Crider tomorrow night when he speaks. And if you're in his seminar, where he will deal with revival. Most greatest need in the world is not, first of all, evangelism. It's, it's revival within the church, within the body of believers. Now, uh, what should we be like? I want to read something to you that we ran across the other day, and maybe we can... It's entitled, The Fellowship of the Unashamed. I am a part of the the fellowship of the unashamed. The die has been cast. The decision has been made. I have stepped over the line. I won't look back, let up, slow down, or back away. 
My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, tamed visions, mundane talking, cheap giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean on his presence, walk with patience, live by prayer, and labor with power. My face is set, my gait is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions are few, my guide is reliable, my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the adversary, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up, until I've stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, spoken up for the case of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till all know, and work till he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My banner is clear. I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I'm told that this was the final testimony of an African Christian before he was martyred for his faith. Is that a picture of the body of Christ? Unfortunately not. But what if it were? And that's what it means to be holy, holy his. Shall we pray together? Father, we give you thanks for just the privilege of being together. We give you thanks for your word. What a treasure it is. We want to thank you for that. We give you thanks for the hunger you put in our hearts for you. We know it didn't originate with us. You put it there or we wouldn't have it because we remember days when we didn't have it. We want you to intensify that hunger for you. Where our passion, the greatest passion in our being, is for you, to know you, to love you, to serve you, to trust you. So let our hours together contribute to that end and somehow make us more like you in these hours together. And we'll give you praise in Christ's name. Amen.